Well, hello and welcome. Uh, I am in a different location today. So if you're uh, uh, tuning in and you notice I don't look like I am normally uh, at the same place, you are right. Uh, I am actually in Nashville today. I've been attending the Trauma-Informed Educators Conference here in Nashville, Tennessee, which has been a great opportunity. We've had a lot of amazing speakers at the conference. Uh, that event has been hosted by uh, Matthew Portell, uh, and uh, really been a, a great event. I had the opportunity to talk to a couple of sessions about restraint and seclusion as well. Uh, of course, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, and really happy to have you join us today. We've got another great uh, live event on for today, uh, and we've got Dr. Charles Bell, who's going to be joining us. This is going to be a really interesting conversation we're having today. I'm going to introduce uh, Charles in just a moment. If you're not familiar with the Alliance, uh, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint really was formed uh, about three years ago uh, with the idea of raising awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country uh, and even beyond. Our goals are really to raise awareness and help reduce the use of restraint and seclusion in schools around the world, honestly. Uh, we think there are better things that we can and should be doing. We think that very often kids are being uh, punished and are being disciplined in the name of behavior. Uh, it's having a lot of negative outcomes. It's restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, all of those things that are being done to kids. There are far better ways, so we're really excited to try to promote what those better alternatives are. We spend a lot of effort around uh, legislative change, but also around education. You know, how can we share things that are helpful? So let me go ahead now and introduce to you uh, our guest for the day. Uh, we are very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Charles Bell. Uh, Dr. Bell is a professor in the Department of Criminal Justice Science at Illinois State University. Uh, he's also the author of Suspended Punishment, Violence, and the Failure of School Safety. Uh, his research explores student, parents, and teachers' perceptions of out-of-school suspensions, seclusion, restraint, school safety measures. Uh, Professor Bell works with local and state politicians to improve school disciplinary uh, discipline transparency and establish laws that protect families from harmful disciplinary practices. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, Meet Dr. Bell uh, kind of virtually uh, a number of months ago and, and had a great conversation. He's actively doing research related to restraint seclusion that I'm really excited to talk about. But let me first just begin by saying, uh, Dr. Bell, welcome and thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here today. That's fantastic. We're, we're really happy to have you. And I think the kind of research that you're doing is, is really critical. Uh, I know previously we were able to share some of the announcements you had looking for families you wanted to talk to. Uh, and again, as we talk through uh, the conversation today, uh, you know, keep in mind, we've got a really broad audience here. We've got a lot of parents, uh, a lot of self-advocates, a lot of educators. Uh, if there are things that we can help you with in any way by connecting you with people to share their stories, always want to do that. Uh, you and I had talked about um, kind of starting off today uh, with a presentation and then I think we're going to talk about your current research and allow for some Q&A. I do want to encourage those that are watching live and, of course, uh, remind everyone that all of these events, when we do them, uh, they are recorded. They are live streamed on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, they are also recorded and made available later on YouTube, Facebook, and as an audio podcast. So there's lots of ways to go back and listen to these. Uh, I always encourage our, our viewers and our listeners to share these, share these with uh, other 
parents, with other educators, with other families, whoever it may be. Uh, there's a lot of really valuable information, and I know you won't be disappointed today uh, in the things that you're able to learn. Uh, if you are watching live, uh, please feel free to put a, a comment in the chat. Uh, tell me who you are and where you're from. We'd love to know where you're watching from. I see a number of folks on live. Uh, had uh, one uh, parent already jump on and uh, say they're a parent of an autistic child and a survivor of seclusion restraint practices. Uh, we have somebody here watching, and, and I don't know if I mentioned this, uh, this to you, Dr. Bell, but we have a very international uh, audience. We have a lot of people from around the world. Um, you know, uh, here we have somebody, Michelle, from the UK, uh, but we, it's not unusual that people from Australia or New Zealand, uh, Austin, Texas, a neuroscience student, and that work is really important. Uh, so, so glad to see some of you popping on and telling us where you're from. We have Amy here from New Mexico. So please feel free to, to jump in the chat and let us know who you are and where you're from. So Dr. Bell, I'm going to bring your presentation up on the screen here. And uh, so all of our viewers can see it. So you're welcome to go ahead and go into your presentation mode. And I'm going to let you take it away and, you know, run through this presentation talking about your book. And uh, as you wrap that up, you know, I'll join you again. And uh, we're going to have some conversation about uh, the research you've been doing and, and a lot of the, the things that you've been finding. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds great. All right. So I will go away. But if you need anything at all, uh, just say the word and I'll be there. I'll remind everyone and, and, and you as well, uh, Dr. Bell, that uh, I am in a hotel today because I am, am traveling for the conference. Uh, I expect everything is going to go just fine, although my hotel didn't have air conditioning here the first day I got here. Uh, so, you know, sometimes things go wrong. So I'm going to go away. But if anything happens, just reconnect and uh, we will we will join the, uh, the program in progress. So, Dr. Bell, uh, please take it away. Okay, thank you so much. Absolutely. Okay, so again, my name is uh, Professor Charles Bell. I'm an assistant professor in the Criminal Justice Sciences Department at Illinois State. Uh, I've been researching school suspension, school punishment um, for at least a decade at this point, and I'm working on a subsequent project right now on seclusion and restraint. So even though my book project focuses on school suspensions, the findings in this project actually um, were profound and they actually contributed to my interest in seclusion and restraint. And I'll talk a little bit about both projects to combine the two. And I think it's really important, and you'll see this as I combine um, both African-American students' perceptions of school punishment, which is what my book focuses on, and then the subsequent study on seclusion and restraint, which is what I'm conducting now, which is more inclusive, includes black, white, uh, children and parents from all over the United States. I think what I've arrived at at this point is a sort of anti-blackness sort of blackness and an anti-disability framework um, based on what the participants are stating, participants such as individuals like yourselves. So I will go ahead and start this presentation just to talk about the purpose of my study. Um, I'll give an introduction to, uh, and sort of characterize and encourage you to rethink what is violence based on what the students and parents told me and um, history and things of that nature. And then the burden of school punishment, I'll talk about student victimization uh, and things of that nature. And we'll move into the subsequent project that I'm conducting at this point. So for my book, I asked students and parents approximately about 45 interview questions about how out-of-school suspensions impact the student's achievement, social status, relationships with educators, parents, employment, and their perceptions of metal detectors, guards, and law enforcement officers. 
and also asked educators about 20 interview questions regarding how being threatened or attacked by a student affected their feelings about teaching, safety, and mental health. But I just want to focus on the first half of the book at this point. And the central argument, when I talked to students and parents, they said that public schools, these are African-American students that I'm interviewing, particularly those in Michigan and the Detroit area and um, throughout. And these are students that are in inner city schools, suburban schools. And they're saying to me, what they said is that schools on the surface appear to be these very um, accessible, friendly spaces. I'm sure many of you have children, you've walked into a school and on the surface, it seems very inviting. There's flags on the wall, there's colorful things that are depicted on the wall. And what black students overwhelmingly state is that not for me. It's not a very welcoming space for me because the moment that I walk into the school, I'm being met with metal detectors, I'm being met with guards and law enforcement officers, I'm being criminalized before I even walk in the door. And then I, I'm in a school where there's no resources. I'm in a chemistry lab and there's no running water in my institution. There's lead in the water, the paint's falling from the ceiling and school suspension emerges out of this sort of structurally violent environment. And when we think of violence, we think of interpersonal violence. We think of gun violence and increasingly other forms of like physical violence, but we don't think of policy and institutions as being violent. And in the context that we're in today in a technologically advanced society where you need an education, and education is essential, uh, and particularly in the Detroit area where Detroit is dominated by the manufacturing industry and has been for a number of um, years. And then all of a sudden um, in recent time, you don't have those kind of opportunities. Manufacturing jobs have been sort of cut. We've, we've moved sort of of towards a technological industry and increasingly towards uh, electric vehicles and things of that nature. And um, the automotive industry in Detroit just doesn't employ as many people as it does as it didn't historically. So at this point, you have a population that was never forced to go to college and now they're forced to do so. And it's a tough sort of transition that these students are making across one generation span. So you need to go to school, you need an education, and then you walk in the door and you're being criminalized, suspended, and removed from an institution that is structurally violent that you have to navigate. So when, we, when I think about violence, when I thought about what the students are saying, I'm walking into a school, I don't have resources, I don't have um, the things I need to be successful. I'm being criminalized when I walk in the door and I'm being suspended. And I have some really interesting accounts from students who are suspended for very, not only for minor reasons, which we've heard before, but the I think the thing that's really unique about my work is that the misinterpretations of students' behaviors, thinking that certain students' actions can be misinterpreted. And I have some great examples of this to really get a generate a conversation. I'm being suspended for these things. Is that violence? If I need to go to school to learn, and the moment I get into the school, I'm being sent home, and I can't get my, my makeup work, I can't learn, and I'm essentially being trapped in this environment. I'm trapped in poverty because the school is the only way I can get out of poverty, and I can't go to school because I'm suspended. So is that not violence? And when I look at the literature here, peace and conflict studies scholar Johan Goltun coined the term structural violence 
to describe how social institutions harm people and communities by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. And those of you who are watching, I want you to really think about schools as structurally violent institutions, because even if your child is not just being suspended, even if they're being secluded and restrained, your child is not getting what they need. They're not getting the education that they need. So for your child and for you, school may also be a structurally violent environment. I'm using this sort of theory to build up on my current study as well. And then philosopher Newton Garver states that any institution that systematically robs a certain people of rightful options generally available to others does violence to those people. And we know that for uh, non-disabled students, education is generally available to them. And if it's not generally available to everyone, those who are being suspended, secluded, and restrained are being victimized. This is a form of violence. And we have to think about the harms that come along with the violence. Political science scientist Douglas Hibbs really helps us conceptualize this violence um, because structurally violent institutions don't come from nowhere. Structurally violent or institutions are made structurally violent by policy. Policies like zero tolerance policies that authorize suspensions and expulsions um, or the lack of political oversight, which is what I'm seeing in the seclusion and restraint research that I'm doing right now. Um, the schools and the lots of school officials, um, particularly the central administration officers, they just feel so brazen. They're, nobody's watching. The state legislators, they're not engaged. Nobody's watching to see if a school is actually breaking the law. And typically, if you wanted to uh, sort of uh, affirm your rights, you have rights. If you wanted to affirm those rights, you want to go to court. Well, many parents can't afford to go to court. And this is an, an overarching theme in my current research, in, in, my, in this book. But in my current research, many of these families are affluent and they can afford to go to court. They're spending 10, 20, 30. I've had families spend $300,000 fighting the school. And they lost because the school essentially has an unlimited amount of money. They just take your taxes and the taxes from the entire area and they use them against you in many cases. So I think that this is a very sort of profound uh, issue. But I just want to reiterate that structurally violent institutions don't become structurally violent on their own. The metal detectors come from a policy. The guards come from a policy. The seclusion and restraint rooms come from a policy, and it's the policies that are trickling down to create the structurally violent institutions, and then your children and parents are harmed by these policies. So that's a framework here. Now, just to provide a description of the students from an inner city perspective, I have a student on video here talking about his school. And I'm hoping that you can hear this. If you can't hear it, um, please let me know. But I think this is a very sort of powerful description of what a structure of what one structurally violent school looks like. And I want you to think about this. Some of your schools may look like this. Some of them may be structurally violent in very different ways. So I'll go ahead and play this really short clip. Yeah, in high school, I ended up going to Osborne, which was a public school, Detroit public school. And this the feel of the environment of uh it feels more like jail than school it feels like that instead of us coming here to learn 
it was like we were coming here to be held captive. Uh, it felt such as we were not people. We were more so uh, enemies, young enemies, people going through the system, uh, looking at people graduate that can't read proficiently, uh, looking at my community, seeing the poverty, seeing the birth rate, seeing just how the community is and having to walk into school that has bars on the windows so we can't even open the windows inside. Seeing barricades and security, metal detectors at the front door, at each door, chains and doors bolted so that no one can get in, no one can get out. Uh, having to be patted down two times a day. Uh, while we have no working news, no working water fountains, uh, we don't have, don't have books in the classroom. Really, the books were from 1998. I was born in 1999. I'm sending the books from 1998. That's the year that my mom graduated. So now I'm sending the same class, the same books that my mom had. And now there's only one book that we all have to share. Uh, in Detroit, it was also a uh, Act passed that uh, teachers didn't need a teacher's degree to teach because there was such a shortage of teachers. So seeing that the state and the city didn't care about us enough to even put a proper teacher in front of us. Uh, most days we're sitting in class in high school, we're watching Frozen. And I'll stop it here. So just listen to what he's saying. He's saying that he's sitting in a, in a school. Um, this student's name is former student. His name is Jamari A. Hall. He actually sued the state of Michigan for failing to provide access to quality education. I encourage you to look up the lawsuit and the uh, settlement, which is sort of an admission of guilt here by the governor at this point. So I want you to really think about what he's saying. I'm in a school, there's bars on the walls, there's bars on the, on the windows, the doors are, are shut, there's metal detectors, there's guards, they don't have working water. It's that framework that gives birth to a school, the prison pipeline, or school suspensions and restraints and seclusion. And the dehumanization, he says it very early on. He doesn't feel like a person. He feels like an inmate that's just being sent through the system. So that's the framework that we're operating with here. And I just want to just keep going here because I'm rising up on time. So Black students make up about 15% of the school-age population and 38% of those who receive at least one out-of-school suspension. And we know that Black students were disproportionately subjected to in-school suspension, expulsion, arrests on school grounds. And, and we've known this for a while. And this is one of the reasons why I actually interviewed students and parents, because it was so important to understand how they perceive this environment. So this graph is really important. So this graph is a depiction of school suspensions and enrollment in a in the Detroit public school system. And but this has much wider implications in Detroit. This is a sort of national issue here. So what you're seeing here is enrollment in white or in, enrollment in gray and suspensions in white. And here you see that the in the 2016-17 school year, the state legislature in Michigan passed school discipline reform. We've passed school discipline reform in Michigan, uh, Massachusetts, Illinois, 
And the school discipline reforms are supposed to reduce suspensions. They're supposed to, you're supposed to consider a student's age, disability, severity of the offense, and a variety of other factors before you issue any punishment. And what you're seeing here is that in response to school discipline reform, which was passed right here in the 2017 school year, school suspensions in this district actually increased. We were suspending about, we were issuing about uh, 11,000 suspensions in before school discipline reform. And after school discipline reform, we're approaching 20,000 school suspensions in one academic year, particularly in a district that only has less than 50,000 students. That's a lot of suspensions. And think about the sort of collateral damage that's doing on kids who uh, are getting suspensions. And the students that I interviewed, they didn't just get, you know, one day suspensions. They're getting suspended for five, 10, 20 days, 30 days at a time. So they're getting a lot of suspensions and they're getting suspended for many days, which means they're not in school and they're essentially trapped in society, in poverty. Now, this graph is so important because in other districts, the data is hidden. It's not accessible. I was able to get this data using the Freedom of Information Act. But in your state, I encourage you to ask this question. Can you go to your school district's website and actually find school suspension data? Can you find school seclusion and restraint data? And if you can't, that's an impediment to reform. Because how can you reform school suspensions and school restraint and seclusion if you can't access the data? That's a huge problem. It should be free. It should be available everywhere. And I am on a national crusade to be uh, and, and to make sure that data transparency is available in every state because this is ridiculous that we're passing school discipline reform in these states and politicians are just you know patting themselves on the back. They are um, congratulating themselves and they're not studying to see the effectiveness of these laws. And sadly, nobody has the data because it's hiding behind the Freedom of Information Act. So moving forward, in my book, what I found is that nearly all the students and parents suggested they perceived out-of-school suspension as unfair because punishment was excessive with respect to the conduct violation. School officials marginalized Black students and parents' voices and denied them the opportunity to explain their perspective in the school disciplinary process. School suspensions harmed students' grades. It jeopardized parents' employment. Parents lost their jobs. And then school suspension actually functioned as a barrier to obtaining employment. And I'll talk a little bit about that as well. And then schools failed to protect students and criminalize them for protecting themselves. And in many cases, parents literally packed up and left these districts because they lacked the financial means to challenge this system. And they left and, and sort of continue to relocate from city to city, packing up everything they own in search of a school that would not issue these sort of punitive mechanisms. So I just have a few examples for you just to illustrate this, and then I'll transition into seclusion and restraints as well. So Sandra is a 10th grade student. She's from middle class background status, and she got a five-day suspension. Now listen to this scenario. She's in a classroom, and she sees two girls arguing. One of the girls she knows, she's sort of uh, an associate with, she says, she tells her friend, calm down, because if you argue with one of them, they're all going to jump in. And my principal thought that was a threat. So she warned her associate not to argue with the girl 
Because if you argue with him, then other girls are going to jump in. Her principal says, you threaten her, you're going to get suspended. You got suspended for five days. I asked her, how did she feel about that? And what was really interesting is that in the actual hearing, she says, I feel like they didn't hear me out. Nobody listened to Sandra. And what's really interesting here is that when she when she says, when I came back to school, the girl was like, why did you get suspended? And I was like, because they said I threatened you. And she said, how did you threaten me? So Sandra didn't threaten the girl. The girl who Sandra had supposedly threatened says, you didn't threaten me. So why was Sandra suspended? Complete misinterpretation of her behavior led to her suspension. If you don't believe that, we'll have another one for you. I have a ton of these. Willie is a ninth grade student in a low socioeconomic environment. And his situation, he's in a cafeteria. I want you to picture this. He's in a cafeteria. He sees fights happening in the cafeteria. And instead of recording the fight, instead of participating in the fight, he removes himself from the fight. He's standing outside of his teacher's door, waiting for his next class to start. An administrator comes by, sees him and standing in front of his teacher's door, accuses him of skipping lunch and issues a three-day suspension for skipping lunch because they say he wasn't supposed to walk out of the lunchroom. I asked Willie, did he even have an opportunity to explain himself? How did he feel about this situation? He says, they should have let us talk because they didn't let us say nothing. They just suspended us. They didn't let us tell the story or nothing. Maybe if they let us tell the story, I wouldn't have gotten suspended. We need laws in place that allow children to tell their side of the story. We need a neutral school discipline arbitrator in the schools who's not sort of beholden to any political system to make sure that students know their rights, that their voices are being heard, that notifications get out. Because for some reason in society, if you at the point of arrest, let's say you're arrested, we would never allow you to be arrested and not read your rights. We would never allow you to go to court without an attorney. It's illegal. You need representation unless you refuse it. But for some reason, you feel comfortable with a child who's being accused of something. You did it. You did it. And that child doesn't know their rights. They have no access to legal representation. Nobody in the school is listening to the student. And what these students are saying is that at the point of an accusation, when I'm accused of doing something wrong, the entire bureaucracy of the school mobilizes against me. Teachers, assistant principal, principal, the entire bureaucracy. And here I am, a 12-year-old kid. 13, 14-year-old kid, I'm by myself. They're telling me I did something wrong. I know I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm a child. I don't have the means to challenge this system. And that's the problem. And it's particularly problematic in the case of illegal school suspensions. I'm going to skip forward for a few slides, and then we'll transition into school seclusion and restraint. So according to the Michigan State Board of Education, I'm going to pick on Michigan here, suspensions mandate a more formal due process in which the student parent will be notified of the allegation, disciplinary recommendation, date and location of the hearing, and the right to attend. That's the law. Now, despite this law, students from three different high schools 
told me that an unwritten policy exists in their school that mandated students who are suspended for any reason. You got a suspension for any reason in the months of May or June, you were told not to return to school until the following school year, September. You can't come back until September. The consequences of these legal suspensions are profound. Marcus is a great example of this. And let's look at Marcus's situation. He's a 10th grade student. He has a specific learning disability in reading. It's 20 suspensions and two expulsions on his record. And he feels that the school officials are targeting him because of his height and weight, because he's older than the other students. He's sitting in a classroom and he says, his teacher called him a failure. She kept saying stuff, you know, she got under my skin. I kind of lost it. I went out in the hallway and punched a window and then took me out for that. He punched a gated window. Now let's look at this situation. If your teacher called you a failure, how would you feel? What kind of institution allowed the teacher to call a student a failure? A structurally violent institution, let's keep that in mind. He punches a gated window. Wouldn't you be frustrated if a teacher called you a failure? How would you feel? Now, the illegal part comes in when Marcus got a suspension. He was suspended April 6, 2017. I interviewed Marcus in the middle of May, and he didn't have a return date. I asked him, when does he go back? He says, you know, they're supposed to let me know. I don't know. That's illegal. That's a violation of the due process clause in the 14th Amendment. It's a violation of the Gosby Lopez court decision. It's a violation of the laws that I just read a few slides ago. They're supposed to inform him of the allegation, disciplinary recommendation, date and location of the hearing, and the right to attend. He didn't get any paperwork. He didn't get any notifications. He's just sitting on the porch. He's been sitting on the porch for 30 days, waiting. And the dangers of this is that Marcus lives in a really tough neighborhood. He says, the neighborhood I live in, everybody's either in prison or dead. It's pretty decent. It's not safe, though. It's just quiet. It's not safe because, believe it or not, they just found a dead body across the street over there. And during the interview, we saw that unmarked police cars were watching this because this area is just not safe. So when we remove students from school illegally and we place them in these at home at a time where we know their parents are not there to watch them, we're literally sending children back home to environments that they're fighting to escape by going to school. For a lot of these children, school is a safe place. It is, it is their idea of a safe place. I want to go to school so that I can gain the skills necessary so I can start a family and live a good life. Yet, you're sending me back home. Why? So in addition to that, I found that school suspensions harm students' grades, um, most notably because educators formed negative perceptions of students that got suspensions and used their discretion to deny students access to their makeup work. DeAndrea, 12th grade student, says, Depending on the teacher, some teachers be like, oh, you suspended, all right? You don't care about school. 
And that's the mentality some teachers would have, using their discretion to deny students access to their makeup work. Tanji, mother of Anthony, is a 10th grade student. She says, I was basically going back up to the school every other day, fighting to get his makeup work, fighting. Why does a parent have to fight to get their child's makeup work after a suspension is, is issued? Does the school really want the child to continue to learn? And what we, let's just take a, a step back and look at what we know about school suspensions. If you're giving a child a suspension and they're off task, they don't have any makeup work. When they return to school, they're not going to know what's going on. They're going to be off task. And we know that that typically leads to another suspension. So we're starting the school to prison pipeline by funneling these suspensions when we don't give students their makeup work. So why wouldn't we give students their makeup work? It makes no sense unless we want to play a role in students dropping out and facilitating the school to prison pipeline. So this is what a politically violent, structurally violent system does to, to students. Now, to transition over to school, to school seclusion and restraint, in, the, in my current, in my past study, this, this book, Suspended, I found that students with disabilities, uh, particularly black students, received longer suspensions uh, that were more harmful they were less likely to get their makeup work. And these suspensions uh, harm, were more likely to harm parents' employment, lead to job loss and function as a barrier to employment. And they were more likely to be illegal. So I was thinking that if suspensions are harmful, what about seclusions and restraints? And at this point, I can actually um, take this presentation off and transition over. So I, st I started thinking about seclusion and restraint, and what I found is just stunning. Um, maybe not as stunning to some of you because you have direct experience here, but so the, the my current study on seclusion and restraints, I focused initially on black students in Michigan and Illinois. That's just because of where I'm from and my current data that I had at the time. And I got emails from all over the country you need to open this study up to include families of all racial backgrounds. And I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. So I opened the study up and I've been recruiting throughout the Midwest and East Coast and Southern states. And what I found really ties in from an anti-Black school, structurally violent institutions. And it really shows that schools are also anti-disability. I've had parents tell me that school officials told them, why can't your child be a normal boy? That comment is just ringing in my head. What kind of school official would say that to a, a parent? Um, parents have told me that the trauma associated with navigating this process, fighting for their children throughout the school seclusion and restraint process has led them to develop high blood pressure, strokes, depression, so it's affecting parents in tremendous ways, the burden of navigating this process. Uh, I've had parents tell me that uh, we're spending $200,000 to fight this case and we're losing. And even the parents who win some of these lawsuits, um, very few of them have won. And when they do win, the school forces them to sign non-disclosure agreements. 
agreements. So the changes that would impact many children, many of you, the systematic changes that need to occur are sort of blocked by these secret non-disclosure agreements. We admit that we did wrong in your case, your case only, but when you're doing the same thing to 10,000 other students, then you really need to make some systematic changes. So um, at this point, I guess we can transition into a more of a question and answer format. I have tons of data um, and I can talk forever about this, but. That's great. Uh all right, uh, Dr. Bell, so I, I am back. I just popped back on the screen here. Uh, and and I, I thank you for that presentation and, and kind of getting started into the restraint seclusion um, research you've been doing as well. Uh, we have a couple comments and questions, and I'll hit those in a minute. But uh, I wanted to start with a, uh, uh, and I guess that's the, the benefit of being the host, right? I get to ask my own question first here. So bear with me if you have a question in the uh, chat. But my question for you, uh, so, you know, you know, this work that you've been doing is so important. Uh, you know, I mean, what you're talking about is, you know, the, the way that many of our schools are set up, the, the punitive practices that are, that are very common cause a lot of harm. They cause a lot of harm. They disproportionately cause harm. Uh, you know, we know that there are certain, um, you know, certain people that are more likely to find themselves being, you know, restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, you know, still in 19 states uh, subjected to corporal punishment, um, they're having a, a really detrimental effect on uh, not only lives, but but society. I mean, you know, the whole school to prison pipeline, the idea that, you know, kids are having these things done to them, uh, they eventually end up getting disengaged uh, in school. School doesn't feel safe to them. Why do I want to go? Uh, they end up in the juvenile justice system and up in the criminal justice system. And entire lives are, are ruined because of what's happening. And, and one, I, I just, I'm getting to a question here, but you know, I, I thank you for the work that you're doing and the research you're doing. It's, it's really important. Uh, I wanted to ask you the why question. And, and the why question is, you know, Dr. Bell, what, what got you interested in this as a topic and uh, how did this develop into something that you really started uh, doing a lot of research on? So uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of where, where you came to all of this from? Certainly. And I think my interest in this topic spans over a number of years. Um, I can remember um, being in Detroit, I'm from the Detroit area, and I'm looking around, I can remember being in college, and I'm starting to see less and less African-American students. And I re remember waking up one day, I'm going to school, and I see no one. We're in Detroit, the blackest city in America, and there's no students of color in the room but me. And I started thinking, like, what are the barriers? What is happening here? Um, how can this be? You know, so I started looking at some of the social problems that disproportionately function as barriers to higher education mm -hmm. and started looking at special education, started looking at school suspension. And once I saw this term, the school to prison pipeline, I just said, aha, because not only did the literature resonate with me, but I could see the pipeline in my community. Like thinking back on peers who you know, gotten suspended and uh, never graduated, just dropped out because they just felt so off task and um, were traumatized because of the community violence that had occurred and never returned to school. So I thought about this problem and I just said, you know, that, this is it, that, that's the issue. 
And then I realized in the literature for a number of years, um, this problem, the first documentation of the school to prison pipeline is published in 1974 by the Children's Defense Fund. So between 1974 and probably between, I'm going to say, uh, early 2000s, early to late 2000s, uh, most of this research is quantitative. So that means researchers are going throughout the country and they're documenting the overrepresentation of students of color in these areas, but they're not going to the communities and actually asking the students and parents how they feel about the policies, how they impact their lives, parents' employment, um, academic achievement, their social status, um, perceptions of mental They're not asking these questions. And I couldn't believe that uh, there's really no qualitative research there. So when I started asking these questions, I started getting a lot of um, rich data, number one, because parents are just like, finally, students are like, finally, somebody wants to hear my side of the story. And I thought that was really profound. Um, and then once I started hearing students and parents' perceptions and understanding that, okay, how many days were you suspended? 30 days, that's illegal, That that's illegal. And really just starting to question, where's the politicians? Where is the political oversight here? Um, and I think a lot of other things converged as I was doing the study, particularly the um, implementation of the school discipline reform laws uh, happened right at the beginning of my study. And I would say that the book actually includes three different studies. So once I conducted the first study uh, in Detroit, I thought I was done. And a lot of those parents at the end of the study said that we're leaving Detroit. We're, we're out of here. We're going to go to the suburbs and we're going to go to a different school. And I had left Wayne State. I graduated. I came to Illinois State to work. And by the time I got settled in Illinois State, I got people on the phone calling me, telling me, you got to come back. It's worse in, in the suburban areas. And we don't know what to do. So I immediately continued, created the second study. And I think between observing and understanding the findings of both the first and second studies, um, I'm being suspended in primarily black school districts. I'm leaving that area, and then I'm being suspended even more in primarily white school districts. There's no safe place for me. I'm being suspended everywhere I go for my hair, for my dress code, uh, for misinterpretations of my behavior. And then um, looking at the small subset of students that had disabilities in the study and seeing that all the students that had illegal suspensions all had disabilities. Mm-hmm. All the students that had 30-day, 20-day suspensions all had disabilities. Hmm, what's going on here? You know, we have all these laws. Why aren't they protecting children? Mm-hmm. We have all these laws. Why are school officials violating these laws? And, um, and then I had a school official say something really important to me. So after school discipline reform was passed, and I had this data, that I showed in on the um, slide showing that school suspensions had actually increased. I start questioning administrators about this. Um, why are you issuing more suspensions in light of school discipline reform? And the response was that uh, the legislature has passed a law and we see it, but we've been punishing students and suspending students for 30 years. It's worked great for us. And until the legislature produces a law that punishes me for continuing to violate this law, we're going to continue to do it. 
And particularly in Michigan, we have a voucher system where every child receives or the school district receives about $10,000, $15,000 per child. So they can get the money on count day. Count day is the day where they incentivize everybody to come to school and the state does a count. They send based on attendance that day, the school district gets a certain amount of money per student. And after the school district gets the money, they really have no incentive of keeping the child and they can just issue suspensions after suspensions. And I had a few um, students say that they're not going to expel us because if they expel us, they lose the money. So they're going to continue to issue suspensions. So it really made me think about how brazen some school officials are and because they know that politicians are not watching and then uh, it made me start thinking about the Quiet Rooms article that was published in the Chicago Tribune in ProPublica. And I was wondering if, if this is happening everywhere. And of course, in this study, I'm finding that it is. And the harmful effects of this structurally violent system um, are, are profound. It's everywhere. And the seclusions are, it, it's, an understudy phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's an understudy tragic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, and what, what's always interesting to me is that, um, you know, you, you talk about the impact and, you know, um, of course, I'm, I'm here in Tennessee right now at a trauma-informed educators conference. And one of the first things that comes to mind when I think about impact is trauma. Um, you know, being held to the ground physically restrained is traumatic being put into a seclusion room by yourself while the door is being held shut mm-hmm. is traumatic. And of course, you know, what we know about trauma is it changes the brain. It changes the brain in such a way that it makes individuals more likely to be hypervigilant, more likely to feel unsafe, more likely to have distress related behaviors. And, and what does that mean? Well, that means behaviors that might in fact then uh, you know, kind of generate compliance demands. So, you know, the whole cycle feeds itself. And the more that you're doing punitive things to kids, the more you're restraining, secluding, suspending, showing that you have low or no expectations for kids, the more you're feeding the cycle and pushing kids down that school to prison pipeline. I mean, it's it, it really is a significant uh, and avoidable tragedy that, you know, I mean, again, um, like you, I mean, the first time I ever heard the words restraint seclusion in the context of a school I was somewhat in shock. I would have never imagined those things happen. And when it happened to my son, of course, I became aware. But I still, I mean, I can't tell you how many families I've talked to, how many parents I've talked to, how many self-advocates I've talked to that have been affected by these. And we have people here in our audience today that have been affected by these things. And the harm is tremendous. You know, you talk about the the illegal suspensions, you know, any, and again, intersectionality here, you know, when we look at, you know, disability and race, um, you know, we see an increase in, in all of these things. I think about, um, I provided um, public comment at one point to our board of education and a good friend of mine, uh, a, a black mother provided comment as well. And, you know, she was kind of talking about restraint seclusion and all the disproportionate discipline. She said, you know, and, you know, if you have a child with a disability, it's more likely to happen. She's like, that's my son. You have a child that's black, it's more likely to happen. That's my son. You have a very young child, it's more likely to happen. That's my son. You know, these are things that we know and and we can do better. I mean, that's part of the work that, that we're trying to do here 
is really raise awareness. So I think this kind of research is really critical. And I'm glad uh, I'm glad this is something that you've decided to um, you know pursue. I'm going to touch on some of the comments and questions we have here. But um, yeah, I just again, you know, I, I think about all these things. And one of the things I was thinking about when you talked about suspensions uh, is what I would term as kind of illegal send homes, illegal suspensions. Uh, you know, anybody here that's listening right now live, uh, were you ever called to the school and asked to take your child home? Mm -hmm. Were they actually suspended? You know, how many times are kids kind of unofficially suspended and sent home? Uh, you know, especially again, you know, kids with disabilities. And what happens then, uh, you know, if a parent's not able to come, you know, what happens then at the school? So let me hit some of these comments here. Um, uh, just, you know, again, just going to go through some of these quickly. Uh, Dr. Mickey Marinelli is a uh, professor at the University of Texas uh, in Austin and a neuroscientist uh, joining us today. Uh, we've got uh, somebody here from Maine, uh, an RN from New Jersey, uh, a friend and ally here, Nicole, uh, in New Jersey, uh, watching from New York. So it looks like you're uh, traveling. Somebody else here from New York. Um, somebody talking about your point of having unqualified uh, educators saying we had college students working in our school to fill up their resumes who were given permission to tackle us. Um, a number of comments on the violence. Uh, Kara here mentioned that she's from Oregon. And as you mentioned, they spent over $10,000 in legal mm -hmm. fees to fight for their son. Uh, Nicole mentions the um, restraining seclusion closets being every, used every day for K through 12 children, uh, children losing the learning time. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, violent actions, forcing children into a closet against their will. Uh, majority of children being repeatedly put in these closets were black boys. Uh, no one knows the truth. And uh, of course, Nicole, uh, you know, has experience in, inside of schools. Uh, the state's not requiring reporting on these uh, things as well. And, and even when we have reporting requirements, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, they're often not fulfilled. People are often not meeting their uh, requirements. And then even then, as you, it was really shocking what you said, but unfortunately not surprising in the, well, yeah, there's a new law, but they're not going to do anything to us. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if some of these things weren't, you know, we, we do a lot of work around legislation. We also do a lot of work around education. And I wish the legislation wasn't necessary. I, mm -hmm. I wish that we didn't have to make laws to do things that we should be doing because they're the right things. You know, as Karen exactly. mentioned, like, treating kids like criminals. Um, you know, you describe the school environments that you're, you're, you know, the kids that you had talked to had described. And, uh, you know, we wonder why things are going the way that they're going with kids feeling, you know, these very punitive results. So I'm just going to share a few more here and we'll get to some questions here. Uh, I think I can still feel the panic of being shoved into a windowless room and hearing the door lock behind me. I'm sorry that you had the experience. You were 12 years old. Um, Nicole just gave a correction, said that seclusion was primarily used on K through five kids. Um, Mickey asked a question about your data. So the data that you showed with the graph, I uh, wanted to know if those were the students suspended or the number of suspensions. Uh, that was on the black and white graph that you showed. Let's see, let's go back. I can be very specific. So in the white, that is the number of suspensions that were issued. And in the gray, that's the number of students that are enrolled. Okay. Okay. So you, you have it as a total number, but it's not, it's not by students. So we don't know, for instance, if, you know, we see this with restrained seclusion uh, where sometimes the same kid is restrained Certainly. 
you know, dozens of times. I'm mm -hmm. sure that data is probably um, something could be looked at as well, but that's an interesting question. Uh, Mickey also mentioned uh, they were working on doing research on restraint and seclusion at uh, her university and mentioned the, the terrible time getting data. You know, no. what you said about data being freely available, I, you know, we think about transparency. Um, and, you know, I've spent some time working in and around government, uh, both federal and, and state. Uh, and when we think about transparency, um, you know, FOIA requests through school systems is not that kind of transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how often does a district come back and give you a host of reasons they can't provide it? Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's FERPA. It's, oh, well, we can provide it, but it'll cost you $10,000 to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, we put up a barrier. Yeah. Um, where you get one district, like um, I had one district that sent 300 pages of documents and every document was turned in the wrong direction uh, intentionally so that you, it would take you hours to sort through it and some information was redacted. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Nicole makes the point about working in a school and not seeing the data being reported. Uh, mentioned you earlier, uh, there we go, Linda, um, that we do have people from across the, the world. Uh, Linda's from New Zealand. Uh, doing some great work with uh, the neurosequential model and uh, based on Dr. Bruce Perry's work, uh, but talks here about the need to eliminate suspensions and exclusions um, in all the primary schools, um, structural violence indeed. Uh, a lot of engagement here. We've had a lot of people um, kind of weighing in on, on what you're saying. I did put a link, hopefully, to your book in the chat. Uh, I'll just make sure that did show. Uh, does your book present solutions in addition to the problem? Certainly. And I have documented uh, several of them, one of which is the data transparency issue that I've talked about. And I think that one, uh, I put that one first because it's really important um, for a number of reasons. So, again, as I was sending Freedom of Information Act requests to get data, and I, and I want to, let's back up a minute. So before um, school discipline reform was actually implemented in these districts, this data was online. I think that's a point that I have to emphasize. You could go to the district's website, find out exactly how many students were suspended, expelled. They took this data offline mm -hmm. in light of scrutiny on school discipline. So it's not like they, they can't put it online or they don't have it. They have it and they intentionally removed it so that you can't scrutinize schools that had high suspension rates because we were doing this in the community. So I think that's one thing that's really important. The second thing that's really important is that um, when I submitted Freedom of Information Act requests to certain districts, I got you know requests that ten thousand dollars, or they sent four hundred pages of documents in all kinds of different directions, and then when you sort it, you realize none of it was actually what I requested. Mm -hmm. Or um, I submitted Freedom of Information Act requests to certain districts, and I was able to get their data. And then the data that I got did not match the data that the Office of Civil Rights Data Collection Report has. So if the federal data is incorrect for the districts in which I have data for, then it's probably all wrong. And that's a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, you know, I, I asked the question one time inside of a school district, uh, wanting to understand their kind of their uh chain of custody for data. Uh, mm -hmm. So if they're required to report restraint seclusion data to the state, which in this particular state they were, and they're required to provide it to the federal government, you would think that would be one pool of data that would go to both places. And it turns out it was not. There were separate. Mm -hmm. And, and it, 
I don't even understand how that's possible. I don't even understand how you're not working from the same data sets, but apparently that was part of the problem. And, you know, um, then again, how often do you get data and, you know, you get it and it's, it's not what you're looking for. What you just shared about, um, you know, kind of not getting what you asked for reminded me of a time that uh, I was requesting information from our state department of education. Uh, and uh, in their response that I would get, they would not answer the questions I asked, but they would answer their own question that they made up. It had nothing to do with what I asked. It was like, not only did you not answer me, you, you've made your own question and you've not really answered that very well either. So, um, you know, that, that lack of transparency is concerning. But beyond that, so, you know, um, I'm, I'm in an event today where we're, we're talking to a lot of uh, school administrators and, and uh, educators and, and some great presentations. Um, you know, part of, you know, I mean, part of the solution, of course, we need better data, we need better accountability. But what can we do at a different level? And here's a question about what can we as parents and students and as educators do? Do you have thoughts on that? Do you have thoughts Certainly. on, yeah, what, what parents, and, and you can answer those all separately if you'd like to, whatever Certainly. works best. So I have other issues besides the, uh, or solutions besides the transparency issue, but for the transparency issue, that one was really personal to me. So what I did is I actually wrote a bill proposal on data transparency. And I sat down with state representatives, sat down with state senators, and I pitched it to them. And they actually adopted this proposal. It's embedded in Michigan Senate Bill 68, and it's in committee right now being debated. So if you see a problem and you can identify a solution, um, one-page proposal on how to solve it. Sit down with your state letter legislator, sit down with your state senator and sit, tell them we need this issue rectified and here's a solution. And they can embed this sort of plan in existing legislation or create a new bill. So that's one thing. Other things that I've uh, recommended is we need laws that mandate that students get their work post-school suspension. Mm -hmm. um, there's no reason why a student that receives a suspension should be at home doing nothing and they say they want the work. I really want my work so I can do it. And I can't get it because the teacher won't give it to me. That makes no sense to me. So that needs to be mandated. We also need, um, and I think this is the overarching solution that I propose in the book. And I think that in lots of scholars books, what they tend to do is they list a, a host of solutions and they say, schools will be great if you just do all these different things. Well, the, part, the, the primary problem in schools is that we're not talking to each other. Leg, legislators, researchers, school officials have dominated this discussion. We've excluded parents, advocates, and students from conversations on school discipline and school safety. If you want to talk about, you know, you're not even involved in the decisions. You just come to school, you get a handbook, and they tell you what you're going to do. They tell you exactly how the school is going to be kept safe. They tell you about this, but it's top down. Right. It's forced right. upon you. And that's why it doesn't work because you have no buy-in. Um, there's no room for reflexivity. So what we need is we need every school um, and school system. We need everybody at the table, parents, students. We, we need communities, right? We need communities, exactly. not, not di dictatorships that, you know, here, here's the way it is. Um, you know, and, and I would say even beyond that, and, uh, you know, I, I think you may agree, but, you know, a lot of the focus in our schools is on compliance and control. It's not about 
connection and compassion. And, you know, you mentioned in collaboration, you know, you mentioned getting voices in from the, uh, the family and the student. Um, you know, to me, one of the, the issues is always that, uh, you know, when there are, uh, you know, when there are difficulties or things that happen or behaviors or whatever it may be, um, you know, we have people that kind of come up with adult imposed consequences or solutions, uh, but they never involve the child. They never involve the person that was involved. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in uh, you know, kind of collaborative approaches, uh, things like collaborative problem solving, collaborative proactive solutions, where you actually work with, you know, the, the child is your partner in helping to resolve things or even some of the restorative approaches that are that are trauma informed and, uh, you know, want to uh you know realize that that sometimes harm is done and we need to work together as a community to, to resolve those things you know making some mind shifts i think is a really critical thing and i'm i'm saying that as, as somebody that's out you know right now working with a lot of uh you know people in schools and, and thinking about how do we help people to change their lens in terms of moving away from these very punitive mindsets into you know um you know nobody i know no no parent i know has ever told me you know uh, when my child grows up, I want them to be compliant. We want them to be creative. We want them to be kind. We want them to be many things, but we often put them in systems that are that are pushing them in those directions, not giving them voices, not giving them choices. And I think it's so critical that we also begin to change culture and, and move away from a lot of these approaches. Um, so I have another, um, just another comment here. Uh, Nicole said, yes, when we know better, you do better. And Nicole, I say that a hundred times a day, I feel like. Uh, Mary asked, and this was my question too, you mentioned the uh, kind of the proposed law. Um, would you be willing to share that with me and I can share it with uh, people in our community? Is that something you'd be able to share? Certainly. And it's actually okay. in the appendix to the book. Oh, so okay. Great. Okay. Fantastic. In the book as okay. a template and as a call for action okay. um, to get communities and parents involved. I know that's always a stickler with lots of scholars books is that it's all research and Where's the solution? How do we get involved? And my career started as in activism. So I'm always thinking about how can we get involved? How can we generate these sort of uh, community-based solutions? And I think including that template in the the, uh, appendix was really important for me. I also think one thing that's also unique about my book, and you you touched on this as well, is how do we change conversations and change cultures in schools? And in this book, I actually shared snippets of my own narrative, which I think is um, is really important, too, because a lot of times we look at students and we interpret their behavior as deviant or defiant or aggressive. And we don't know where these students come from. We don't know the environment that they're navigating and the trauma that they've navigated to get there. And I grew up in Detroit. It's a really it was a really tough environment that I grew up in. Lots of shootings. And it certainly had an impact on my life. Uh, a lot of kids where I come from, they're trying to figure out uh, why should I focus on school if I'm seeing people die in my neighborhood mm-hmm. at such young ages. So I think that's a really in, tough conversation, but it's an important conversation. And I say that and, I, and I'll give an example and I share this example in the book as well. Uh, there's one school in Detroit where the administrator was receiving all kinds of complaints I'm stating that students were not engaged, they're late to school, they're not on task. And the administrator knew the environment that the school was in, but the teachers were actually coming in from a very affluent suburbs, driving on the freeway, and they get off the freeway and they come directly to the school. So they never saw the neighborhoods. So the administrator actually arranged a field trip for the school staff. 
And he took them around the neighborhood so they can see exactly the things that their students are navigating. That a lot of times these students, they're not safe on the way home. They're not safe at home. They're not safe on the way to school. Many of these children are surviving the best way that they know how, and they're still coming to school. And, and that's a point that we often miss. These students are fighting for their lives, and they're still coming to school. They're coming to your class. They want to learn because they believe in education. Mm-hmm. And you're sending them home. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, I think this is really important because one of the things I've heard sometimes is this idea like, well, we don't control all the things that happen to them outside of school. But you do control what happens to them inside of those those doors. Exactly. And, and, and sometimes that's the one really safe place that a kid might have. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's critical. You know, your words echoed in my mind, uh, the, the kind of the sentiments of Dr. Bruce Perry. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the book that he and Oprah Winfrey wrote, but uh, the, the title is really what it resonated with me is uh, he's got this great book. And Bruce Perry, of course, is an expert on trauma. The book is called What Happened to You? And, you know, the very concept of that title is so often the lens is what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned stories where kids were getting negative comments from from people. I, I know kids that were told things like you'll end up in prison. Exactly. Told that by an educator, somebody in a position of power, somebody in a position of authority. But if we can reframe from, you know, um, you know, what's wrong with you to this idea of like, what happened to you? What was what was your experience? You know, hey, you know, uh, you were late today, but, you know, you're here. And is there anything you need? Is it any support you need? Who knows what that child might have gone through that morning? Who knows? Exactly. Um, but we, we do tend to be very uh, punitive, very controlling. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, um, you know, Dr. Bell, at some point that, you know, we begin. And, and I know there's places I'm optimistic. There, there are places where shifts like this are happening. Where I am right now, we're with 200 educators and administrators and people trying to move into a trauma-informed direction or already already well into that direction. People doing great work. Um, you mentioned the kind of driving through neighborhoods. We had a parent that spoke this morning sharing her experience uh, as a young Black single mother with a child uh, with a disability um, who was seeing a lot of punitive consequences. Uh, and she mentioned at one point when things went well, they had a um, they had a school team that actually came and visited them at the house and uh, got to know their family a little bit. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in um, kind of the, the idea of trauma-informed approaches, but to me, it's it's much deeper than just we have a trauma-informed approach in school. It's how do we also approach that with our parents, with our with our families, with with, with everyone, with with teachers within a school. You know, how do we make our, you know, how do we make our institutions more, you know, understanding and sensitive to all of these things as well. So there, there's certainly a lot of room for uh, a change, but so much of it comes in a change of mindset, right? Yeah. Certainly. Change of mindsets, um, establishing relationships with students. Mm-hmm. I think it's really surprising that in a school environment, a lot of teachers don't know their students. They don't have relationships with their students. Um, and they make assumptions about their students because of that. Mm-hmm. And if we took the time to actually create an environment which a student felt comfortable enough to tell you that, hey, on the way home or on the way to school, I didn't really eat breakfast this morning. Okay. Um I saw things on the way to school that are traumatizing to me. Um, I can remember even myself waking up in the morning and 
not eating much breakfast and walking to the bus stop and uh, it's pitch black outside. There's no street lights, and, and you see because of um, the closure of mental health institutions, you see people walking in the street with severe auditory hallucinations and visual visual hallucinations, and it's traumatizing for a kid. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of you know terrifying things are happening in the community, and they don't have an outlet. Um, mm-hmm. There's nowhere for them to talk and say that hey, this is what's happening to me. So. And I would also like to share that as another solution that I created. I created a community engagement panel um, in Detroit, and we expanded much further in Detroit at this point. But we, instead of allowing the researchers, parents, and students, instead of allowing the researchers, politicians, and school officials to talk, we put students on the panel. What are you going through, and what is it like? Um, and I remember one panel in particular was just so powerful. I had a um, chief of police on, on the panel with a student hmm. and the student. Um, and first I realized that this was the first time the entire community had a re- interaction with law enforcement that was not sort of on unequal ground. Mm-hmm. Every time they interact with law enforcement, the law enforcement officer has a gun and you have all the power in that situation. Mm-hmm. So we don't talk. School officials, we don't talk. So the student says to the law enforcement, the chief police, I feel that you're always after me. Every time I see you, I'm fearful. I run from you because I feel like you're always out to get me. And the chief of police says, my job is to make sure you go to college. I'm here to help you. I want you to be safe. And tears came down that young man's face. Mm -hmm. Tears in the community. And after that event, I still have photos of this. In the community, you see in an auditorium, you see the community talking with law enforcement, celebrating with law enforcement, having conversations with school officials and principals and judicial candidates that were in that room talking. And that's what we need. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, outside of that panel, I've never seen it. Well, uh, that's that's, um, you know, I mean, it, it's the connection. It's the relation. It's the. Um, you know, it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I want to give people a chance. If you have any final questions, we're going to be wrapping up here in just a minute, but if you have any final questions, you know, f- please feel free to put those in chat. We can ask those. Uh, but I, I want to ask you also this research that you're doing related to restraint and seclusion. Is this ongoing? Um, are you still looking for parents to reach out to you? Um, what, what can you tell me about the, the research that you're doing? Certainly. So if, if you are a parent and your child has been restrained or secluded, I am still interviewing at this okay. point. Okay. Um, always willing to listen and hear experiences and I'm taking this into account and um, using this for my research as well and using it to craft policy, too. I think that's really important. Um, I'm actually going to transition the study because one thing that has emerged is teacher training, teacher training on seclusion and restraint particularly um, at the institutional level, at the higher education level. So I've talked to teachers who feel that they did not receive proper training. And a lot of parents have said that teachers were not properly trained. So I want to know from the program directors, where do you expect teachers to get training on these issues? Is it in your curriculum? And if it's not, that could be a problem because Mm -hmm. you are sending teachers into the field and they're underprepared for the realities that are waiting for them when they get there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my um, experience, uh, very often the the training that teachers or staff are getting is really crisis management training that's teaching them how to use restraint. Um, in some cases, seclusion as well. Uh, but they're not really learning about the impact that restraint and seclusion have, uh, which is something that we do here at the Alliance. You know, we do events to try to raise a kind of awareness. But um, just as a side note, if if you hear anything from that research of the kinds of things that you think that uh, educators are hoping to learn, let me know, because we're we're looking to develop more training for educators. We've, mm-hmm. we've done uh, we did some training for the University of California. We've done some other uh, training where we're trying to inform people about these things. But I would love to hear anything you've gotten back on your your research of where they see the gaps. I mean, you know, frankly, um, I think a lot of the issues go even up to higher ed where mm-hmm. people get out with their teaching degree. They've never really gotten much exposure to what happens when you see a dysregulated child. Uh, what might that look like? Um, you know, uh, people en- end up in schools never even having heard that restraint and seclusion were something that may happen um, and, and have no idea of what to expect or the risk of, of doing these things. Um, so anyway, I just put that out to you. If you, you hear of anything, certainly share that with me. Can I share your, well, what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Can I share your university email or is there a better certainly. way? For, okay, okay. So I'm going to put that here in the chat. Um, I've got your um university email listed so if somebody does want to get in touch with you um regarding your research they could do that uh and i've got uh okay well there was a question asking how to submit data but uh we've handled that uh, how do we reach dr bell we've handled that one as well um mary uh said yes uh there are alternative de-escalation methods to use instead of restraint seclusion Absolutely. And, and the fact that you got to restraint and seclusion means you were not successful in implementing de-escalation because if you exactly. were. But but frankly, we want to go further upstream, right? We don't even want to get to the point where we need to de-escalation. We want to be able to go upstream and support. You know, when I see a kid that's being restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, you know, all of these things, what I often really see is a kid that's not having their needs appropriately met. So if we go farther on, uh, far enough upstream, we're going to figure out how can we better support this kid? What are their needs? Um, why are they having a difficult time? You know, are they, you know, is it a matter of, uh, you know, skills? Is it a matter of, you know, problems they're having? How can we help support them? Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, I had a comment from Rachel. Does the Alliance actively work with different organizations, uh, specifically the Press Association of America? Uh, what I will tell you, Rachel, is that we are always looking to collaborate with other organizations. Uh, we have a lot of uh, organizations that we partner with on various things. Uh, we have organizations that we present for. Um, so specifically we haven't worked with the Tourette's Association, but would be happy to. And if you've got a, uh, a connection there, uh, please feel free to share that with us. Um, and, uh, Melody just shared that her son, um, has left the K through 12 transition with a diploma. Uh, his restraints were from the age of 10 to 16. He's almost 22 years old. Uh, Melody, I'm sorry to hear about your son's experience. Uh, and I hope that, um, you know, I, I hope that you've helped him, you know, kind of through that. And it's very traumatic and uh, very difficult. It's, you know, what you mentioned earlier, Dr. Bell, so important, especially to our audience here, is the impact and the trauma on the families, mm-hmm. the things that they go through. And, you know, I'll tell you as a dad, uh, I mean, when this happened to my son, 
um, it was it was really devastating. And, you know, the reason that I'm doing this work today is that, you know, when it happened to him, um, I made a promise that I would do anything I could to make sure it didn't happen to him again. And, you know, three and a half years later, that led me to, to you know, uh, retire from my current job and, and focus my efforts on this to try to help make a difference for a lot of the kids that don't have anybody there in their corner. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, that makes me really upset to know that there are kids this is happening to that one, it's unreported to, um, you know, they, uh, uh, you know, parents are sometimes misled, uh, led to believe these things are necessary, therapeutic, uh, all, all sorts of things. Yeah. So uh, I don't see any other questions here. Um, but Dr. Bell, I want to give you a, a final chance if there's anything else. Uh, that you'd like to share with us today. I, I really sincerely appreciate you, um, you know, coming on here. I, I really appreciate the work that you do. Uh, this is such an important area. Um, and, you know, I think that the kind of research you're doing is really important. Um, yeah, numbers numbers are great, but uh, the qualitative piece of this is really important to know that real lives are, are impacted, uh, I think is really important. So any final words that you have for us? Um, just thank you for inviting me here today. I, I'm um, happy to share my work, uh, horrified by what parents and students are going through. And hopefully that we can shed some much needed light on this um, and fight for change. If your child has been restrained or secluded or even suspended, um, please let me know. And um, I would love to speak with you about your experiences. Um, I'm working diligently to connect families to one another. I think this is another aspect that I've been really working on in my research because a lot of parents feel that they're alone. They have yep. no one to talk to about this. And it's so important and powerful to connect parents um, because that is the start of community building. When one parent can say that this happened to me and I'm listening to you and what happened to your child happened to my child and I know someone else, then that is how we start a coalition. That's how we start creating change. Mm -hmm. So I think that just continuing to network, I'm always here to help and um, you have my email address. So thank you. Absolutely. And, and, and such a great point. Thank you for making that. And I probably shared with you when we, we talked before, but, you know, I, I started this organization, the Alliance initially, because uh, for that very reason, I wanted people that were going through this, families that were going through this to know they weren't alone. I wanted them to know that they could impact change. And, you know, three and a half years later, you know, our little organization that started out as me and a couple of parents, you know, we've got over 20,000 people following us from around the world. Um, I remember hearing a, a, um, a state legislature uh, meeting where they were talking about, uh, well, there's even a national organization focused on restraint and seclusion. And I thought, ah, they're, they're talking about us. We're making a dent. We're making a difference. You know, we've been uh, provided, you know, uh, op-eds for newspapers and, and been interviewed on this quite a bit. And it's through that, it's through those connections that we make change. And, and uh, Dr. Bell, this connection to you uh, has really been uh, amazing. And if there's anything that we can do to support the work that you're doing and, and stay connected, absolutely want to do so. I uh, want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really great presentation. Again, encourage everybody to uh, share these presentations, uh, share them with your, your school, share them with your families. Uh, so, Dr. Bell, I will let you go. I have just a final announcement for everybody. But but thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You take care now. 
All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, I did want to mention, uh, as always, we've got another event coming up in two weeks. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to pull that up here, hopefully. Uh, so bear with me um, as I'm multitasking here. So in two weeks, we have Dr. Stuart Ablon. Uh, Dr. Ablon is with the University of Massachusetts, or excuse me, Massachusetts General, uh, and going to be talking about uh, Think Kids, which is an organization that he founded, uh, talking about uh, collaborative problem solving, uh, which is another way of working with kids to uh, try to solve problems that are affecting their lives. Another way that we can reduce and eliminate uh, things like restraint seclusion. Uh, so again, thank you all that joined us today, either live or uh, later on the recording. Uh, as always, these are available on YouTube, Facebook, and as an audio podcast. Uh, thank you so much, and we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care. Bye-bye.